we pick up in verse 19. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both the small and great, saying none, none other things than those which the prophets of Moses did, Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth, of, uh, truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am except these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and they that sat with them. And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustus band. And entering into a ship of a dramatium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian, and Thessalonica being with us. And the next day we touched at Sidon, and Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself. And when he had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Snidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed unto Crete, over against Salomon. And hardly passing it came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lacia. Now when such time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them, and said unto them, Sirs, <clears throat> I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not one of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Here we see that Paul is an apostle, and he has a miraculous conversion where he was actually called down upon by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We see that there are endless religions today that claim that they have apostles in their congregations. That is not possible. If they call them apostles, they're liars. They cannot be apostles. They did not personally speak to Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is saying right here. He's saying, maybe I was not part of the band of the disciples that was following Jesus from town to town, watching him do miracles, watching him do all these wonderful events. But as I was the one at the time persecuting from the Pharisaical Jewish establishment, and I was going after the Christians, something happened to me. 
Something happened to me that basically happens in all of our lives. Now, we may not be Pharisees. We may not be Romans. We may not be going and persecuting the Christian church like Paul did. But there was an event in our life where the Lord turned the light on in our hearts so bright we couldn't miss it, when all of a sudden He called us and we responded only because we were dead in our trespasses and Christ chose us. And when He called us, all of a sudden we became a new creature. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul is standing in front of a Roman tribunal. He's facing death. The Jews want him dead. And when I say the Jews, I'm talking about the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the sect of Jews that had nothing to do with Jesus Christ. They hated him and they wanted Paul dead. They did not want him to speak. And so here he's in front of the Roman tribunal and we're still getting ready to head out of Caesarea and Paul's getting ready to take this voyage going towards Italy where the Lord told him, you are going to Rome unequivocally. We didn't know exactly how Paul was going to get there. And, it's, and at one point, he's going to literally be swimming. <laughs> and so basically, Paul's standing in front of Agrippa II, who is related to Herod the Great, and he's standing there in front of Bernice, who she's no paragon of virtue, Festus, who turned over the case to Agrippa II, and Agrippa knows Jewish law. And Agrippa says, okay, let's listen to this Paul the Apostle. What does he have to say? And we can look at this and go over and over, but the most fascinating thing about it, we can see a parallel here with Paul the Apostle, with our Lord Jesus Christ. He comes in and Pilate asks him, what is truth? What is truth? And he asks him all these questions, and he goes back and he says, Pilate says, I find no fault in this man at all. And when he says that, he's saying nothing. But they never released him, did they? Did they ever release Barabbas? Yes, they did. Did they release Jesus? No. And so next what we're going to be finding as we go through this, Paul is going to be like Jesus in a lot of ways. He's going to be, at, he's going to be stuck on a ship, basically counted among all the criminals. Remember how Christ was counted among the criminals and how he had thieves on either side of him at the cross. And that's what happens here. And Paul is in the middle right now of his discourse. He speaks of Damascus. He was sent with a commission. He went to the chief priests and he was so zealous. He said, please give me, he begged the chief priests, give me a writing and let me be able to go to Damascus and I am going to go and I am going to get more Christians. I'm going to pull them out of their houses and out of their churches and I myself, I am going to recondition them. And if they don't listen, they go down kicking, screaming, I'm going to kill them. And so basically that's what he did. We see Damascus was, was actually spoken of in the Old Testament about one with great transgressions. And in, in Amos chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 we read, Thus saith the Lord, for three trans transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead and threshing instruments of iron, but I will send the fire in the house of Haziel, which shall devour the, devour the palaces of Benadad. And I will break also the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Aven. And him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden and the people of Syria shall go into captivity unto Ker, saith the Lord. And there's Damascus all the way back in the Old Testament. And here we see it playing out. Now Paul is getting ready to take ship and he's going to literally be sailing right part, right near the, 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 um, the, the coast there, which is near Damascus. And so we see this coming up many different times. Then we saw last week, Paul saw a light. And if you go back to chapter 9, verse 3, that is the first nine verses of chapter 9 
give the account of the conversion of Paul the Apostle. And so here, chapter 26 actually expands upon it, and Paul actually talks about the literal conversation that he had with Christ. Does anybody remember? As we go to chapter 26, what language was Jesus literally speaking to him in? Anybody remember? And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying, In the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I think that's fascinating because we see these movies that come out. I don't like them. I've never seen it. The Piss Passion of the Christ. I never saw it. I never want to see it. But anyway, according to the writers of, of, of that movie, I did read in an article that they confirm that in all things Jesus always spoke in Aramaic. Well, we see here that he spoke in Hebrew. Why would he speak in Hebrew? Why would he, why would he say, well, why would he use the Hebrew language? Anyone? Teresa? That's right. Teresa. He's taking him back to the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew. And Paul's speaking. Actually, Christ is literally catering to Paul because he speaks to him in Hebrew and he tells him when he... Now remember, at this time, Saul is not converted yet. Saul is his Hebrew name from the tribe of Benjamin. And then his Greek name will be Paul. And it's immediately changed to Paul. We see that through the rest of Scripture. And then Jesus says to him, I am Jehovah. No, he didn't say that. Did he say to him, I am that I am. I am the God of Israel. I am the God of Jacob. Nope. He says, I am Jesus. And why would he say that to Paul? He was catering to Paul. He was connecting with Paul. Isn't that what we do when we're trying to witness and we love our friends and our family and people that we're witnessing to? We try to connect with them. We, we try to ask them questions and see if there's anything we can build off of in the conversation that we can just have some kind of a, a, a correspondence with them. Don't we try to do that? You don't just stand up with somebody, give them the Bible, throw them, hit them in the head. All right, believe on Jesus, that's it. No, you try to come up with some kind of compassionate way to talk with them and to sit and connect with them. We talk about their family. Talk about maybe they have a, a lost brother or sister or some family member, and you sit and you pray with them and you talk with them. And that's what Jesus would do. I mean, what could he have done? You dare to touch the hair on the people that I love, my people of the way, they were called people of the way, you dare to take them and incarcerate them? He could have basically turned Paul into a grease spot. He could have annihilated him for what he did. I mean, look what happened to Ananias and Sapphira earlier on. They certainly didn't get the kind of treatment Paul got. And, and, and Jesus had said to Ananias, not the chief priest later on that's the wicked one, but the good one that took care of Paul. He said... He is a chosen vessel for me. I have plucked him out. And if you love Jesus Christ, you can take part in remembering that and knowing that you have been plucked out. You have been chosen. And you have been given a gift most people can't even begin to understand. It's incredible. And what Paul's saying here, he's not defending himself to get off of his incarceration. He's already been incarcerated for three years and he, his defense is very simple. I want to give the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord sent me. I'm going into this tribunal. I'm going to stand in front of every one of them and I'm going to pour my heart out. So he talks about the light. Who is that light? Um, John 8, 12. Can someone look, at, look that verse up? John 8, 12. 
Who is the light? And here in chapter 26, as opposed to chapter 9, you, if, if you're reading in chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, you will see and you know as a Christian that Jesus Christ is that light. But Paul confirms this. And we see Dr. Luke writes this, and Dr. Luke actually is now with Paul again. They've reunited. But who is that light that shines so bright, not only it knocked Paul to the ground, but it knocked all the people around him to the ground? John 8, 12. And that's it. It's that simple. On Wednesday night prayer meeting, we were, we were in Proverbs. Beautiful, beautiful Proverbs. The wisdom literature. Verses 1 through 6. And we got the verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not under the, unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. That means we were talking Wednesday night, who do we trust in? What do we do? We hear a lot about religion. We hear a lot about isms all over the place. There's all these isms, relativism, Hinduism, atheism, and all these people seem to have all these way to heaven. But what we're seeing from Paul, what we learned back in Proverbs, and we go all the way to John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Even those verses in the wisdom literature says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Everything you have, you trust in the Lord. Not yourself, not government. You go to the Lord first. And that's what Paul's telling him here. He said, I saw that light. Then he said, I heard a voice. We were all fallen to the earth, he's saying. Everyone around Saul was knocked off of their feet. This is the power of Christ. Remember when that cohort of soldiers had taken him and Judas was there. John 18, 6 we read, As soon as then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. They all fell to the ground when Jesus Christ opened his mouth and even had the thought of them falling to the ground. They fell to the ground. That's unlimited power. Could you do that? If you were standing out front here and 300 of these, 300 whatever uh, soldiers came and tried to detain you, could you stand there and think and knock them to the ground? He not, only not, he not only knocked them to the ground, he allowed them to incarcerate him. That's a greater power. That's an incredible power. He said, mine hour has not yet come. And it was not... He was not going to vary from that path for any way, shape, or form. And once again, this is what Paul's talking about here. He's trying to tell them about the prophets and go all the way back when Moses said, a servant will come, woe be unto those that will not hearken unto him. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and you can bet that he went down a whole drop down of what the prophets said about him. Zacharias spoke. What about Isaiah 53, the first gospel I believe in the Bible? Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. And the whole 12 verses talks about the coming Messiah. And this is what Paul's doing. Christ identifies himself, prefacing his, identi his identity with I am. Jehovah is I am. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and my Father are one. Those were the six verses that lit the fuse under the Pharisees that wanted him dead. This really infuriated them. And so he's linking himself as this 
not just little Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am Jesus. But he says, I am. And he takes himself and he links himself right back to Exodus chapter 3 when God himself says, you tell the people of Israel, I am that I am. I am hath sent you. I am the God of your fathers. And so here he identifies himself. That's back in chapter 9, verse 5. And here where we're reading chapter 26, verse 15. These are the words that Christ had spoke to Paul beyond what is recorded. We get to read these words, and we just read them, and they're in red letter. If you have them in your Bible, Christ takes over. Then we read that Paul was saying that the Lord told him, I am going to, I am going to send you out, and I'm going to have you go to the, go to the Gentiles. And he says, basically, the Lord had said to him, if you want to persecute the people of the way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Saul's reaction was astonished. He was trembling. What would you have me to do? Isn't that all we can say when the Lord calls us? Hopefully, Lord willing, Lord, what would you have me to do? And then we read in Peter, you go in Peter, I wish I had the verses in front of me, I just don't have those, but when Peter says, did you have the gift of teaching? Teach. If you have the gift of preaching, preach. If you have the gift of giving, give. You're going to pray, pray, but do it. And, and the, Lord, the Lord instructs Paul. He's, he said, you're going to be doing a lot. You're going to be doing an awful lot for me. Saul had brought help. Those eyes were blinded also. They were all fell to the ground. Paul was the one that remained physically and spiritually blind until Jesus Christ called him. The others had gotten up, and basically Paul was taken to Damascus. He met up with Ananias, and this is what Paul is going on here back in verse in chapter 26. And he goes on, and we see here in verse 19, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. You can't be disobedient to the heavenly vision. Put it this way, if you've been disobedient to it, you've missed the day of conviction. You've missed it. You've pushed it away. Do we have the ability to do that? Yes, we live in a lost and dying world where many people push it away. They hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and it means nothing to them. It's not culturally, it's not culturally with it. It's not part of the current community co conscience. It doesn't line up with all governmental policy now and all the stuff that's out there. It's archaic. It's old. It's a relic. Who is this Jesus? You, do you hear about God? I mean, I hear about prayer all the time. You see it on the internet. Oh, pray for this one has cancer. Pray for that one. Of course, for his prayer. But who are they praying to? Who, who is it that they're worshiping? So with all of this, as we started to end last week, and I wanted to go back over this for those of you who weren't here, because it just gives you a kind of an idea on the emphasis that's put into this journey and how incredible it out of out of out of the defenses and we've been talking about this how many defenses altogether did Paul have does anybody remember we had defenses that's in front defenses in front of different rulers remember Christ told the disciples and he said you, if I, am, if I am in front of magistrates and kings, so will you be. They hated me. They will hate you. You're going to go in front of them. Paul had six defenses. Six of them. And we've gone through the first five. The last one, we had Felix, Claudius Lysias. 
We've had basically Festus, and now he's in front of Agrippa and Berenice, and Bernice in her great pomp. That's number five. And basically, number six, we'll see that in Acts chapter 28. It's his last defense. This defense, this is an incredible defense. Because this defense, Paul finally gets the floor and he gets to speak to everybody all at once. And he's not quieted. There's not rioting around. He has a full congregation of people, in, in essence. He's taking the playing field. And all he's going through, you ask your question, what am I supposed to be hearing? What am I supposed to be understanding and perceiving when I am worshiping the Lord? What is the person who is speaking to me supposed to be telling me? And you want to find out? Go to Stephen's defense. Go to Acts chapter 6 and 7. Go to Stephen's defense. Go to Paul's six defenses and look at what he says here. What are some of the components that he speaks about? What does he say? How does he present the gospel? Is it in entertainment form? Is he using puppets? Is he dressing like a dinosaur, like I saw somebody dressing in front of this church out here last week with their trunk or treat Sunday? Is that what or dressing like a couple of gophers? Is he acting like a complete moron? What is he doing? He's standing there and he is giving them a history of the Old Testament. <laughs> That's what he does. Well, this is you wonder what do I hear? People are saying to I've heard so many people. What am I supposed to be hearing when I go to church? Because they hear a little 20-minute intervention, and it's basically something like you'd hear on Dr. Phil. What am I supposed to be hearing? Well, you're hearing it right now. This is what Paul the Apostle, he's pouring his heart out. This is what you're supposed to be hearing out of the mouth of a pastor. The Old Testament. Paul's conversion. I don't think there's anything wrong when a pastor pours his heart out and gives a testimony of his conversion. I see that many times, even in our presbytery. We actually have a 45 minutes where we can all stand and give a testimony of what the Lord's done for us. Not just this past week, but maybe what happened when we were converted or something like that. I think that is a wonderful blessing to be able to hear such encouragement. And Paul takes him back to his conversion. And then he goes to the very conversation they had with Christ and what Christ's objective was. And with all of this, we just read this. It all comes down and it winds down in this Festus. And Festus is festering, if you want to put it like that. He goes, all I can perceive is that this man is a complete nut. Oh, wasn't that some kind of political measure to make sure he had all of his bases covered? I mean, look at who his mentor was, Felix, back in Caesarea, the governor. Here, Felix was such a coward, and he knew Jewish law. He turned everything over to Festus. Festus replaced him as the governor. Agrippa and Bernice come in, into Caesarea to come in and to enjoy the coronation of this new appointed governor, Festus. And he's only there for two years. Two years, that's all the Lord gives him. Two years, and Agrippa takes over, and he's like, Festus, Felix, I don't know what you all have been doing, but I want to hear this guy speak. If for nothing else, he came a long way, he might as well hear what Paul has to say. And it was so riveting. Festus sits back like the moron that he is. Ah, he's mad, he's crazy, he's out of his head, he's a nut. I've heard so many people talk about this Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Somewhere he's in a tomb and he got out of the tomb. That's all just a bunch of myth and legend, which is what a lot of people say today. But then Agrippa takes over. This is probably the most tragic verse in all of Scripture. Agrippa says, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. What percentage of it did he miss? What part of it didn't he believe? 
Can you think of, I mean, can you, do you know people like that who might want to hear you talk about Jesus and you witness to them? And they, it seems like they're okay with it and they love it and then they just turn around and it does nothing to them. And it just really has no, it doesn't take hold on them. Well, I'm here to tell you the only encouragement I can give you there is you have no power to save them. You have absolutely no power to grab their heart and to put that light into their heart. You have no power to do it. It's of the Lord and sometimes it takes time. That's why the Lord says continue on. Continue to do it. Don't give up. Be consistent. Don't throw the Bible at them one second. If it hits them in the head and they don't understand, I forget them, they're not worth it. I know people like that. You walk over glass and you continue to pray for them. Just like Christ prayed for the centurion servant from a distance and healed him from afar. You pray for him. So what happens here, Saul's eyes were blinded. And in Matthew 28, 18, we read that Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And Christ has all power. And he is the one that lifted the scales off of Paul. And all of a sudden, Paul the apostle had been blinded physically for three days. And the Lord lift that blindness. And I wouldn't let to say something about that. You know how the Lord chooses you and he converts you. And your heart lights up and you start understanding things of the Lord. That is an incredible, that is an incredible election that is a change in your heart. That's repentance. And the Lord calls you to repent, and we repent of our sins. But every single time the Lord healed somebody of someone of blindness, physical blindness in the Bible, isn't it amazing how they immediately started to see they didn't need any therapy? You know, people that have been blinded for years, and they all they start getting some kind of miraculous or medicine or whatever, and they can see a little bit. They have no depth perception. They lose their cognitive, like their balance. It's really hard. Paul got up as soon as the Lord healed him and he just went and from that point forward here we see him all the way to this point he was in he, he was able to see his health wasn't the greatest but he was able to see and so basically at this point what do we do with Paul what happens to Paul does Paul get let go Paul's allowed to go home to his family he's allowed to see his nephew and his sister and do the things that he wanted to do well basically Paul is still completely incarcerated because he had made it very clear that he wanted to go see Caesar. Now, right now, the Augustus Caesar that is now reigning under the Roman Empire is Nero, the beast. He's the one, and Paul does not know yet really how bad Nero is. And I don't believe at this point in this juncture of Nero's, of his uh, uh, enthronement, if you want to call that, I don't believe at this point he knows how bad he is. Because at this point, he had just been trained by Seneca, and Nero actually seemed at this point in Paul's ministry, he actually seemed to be a very calm person, and then all of a sudden, the whole bottom falls out. And Nero becomes a psychotic nut, just murdering everything in his path. And all of a sudden, Paul, he is saying at this point, I'm going to go see Nero, that's it. The letters had been sent. Once those letters had been sent, they could not retract them. And so Paul had to stay incarcerated. So now, what had the Lord told Paul all along? What did he told him? What did he tell him? Where are you going? That's right, you're going to Rome. You know, we all have this, like, maybe uh, this romanticized view of what actually happened to Rome, that it was some kind of magical thing, that he got to write in these beautiful palaces and these beautiful places and have all of his writings do all this. At this point, Paul is just about done. Paul is under heavily guarded. He's under heavily guarded watch. 
And the whole way through, he does get to see some friends at this point. Agrippa says, you could have been set at liberty, but you wanted to go see Caesar. I would have personally let you go. He's saying, you didn't do anything wrong, and I have the eat. I have the apart. He was a tetrarch. Agrippa had power over fourth of the whole Roman Empire, and in that province, and he could have easily appeared to Caesar, appealed to Caesar and said, let this man go. But the Lord said he's going to Rome. So what happens next? He can't go. He's still incarcerated. He's on to Italy in chapter 27. It's a treacherous journey. Paul has appealed to Caesar, and to Rome he must go, and they must go by sea. A great voyage. And note, we're not sure how long this was after this trial and after Paul's fifth defense in front of Agrippa and Bernice and Festus, but it's no doubt it's as long as they could take in order to be able to somehow get a ship. And that was not easy back in the day, and we're going to see what happens there. What's fascinating about this, in verse 27, it says, And when it was determined that we should sail, and we're going to see, we're going to see that several times next in chapter, verse 3, we touched at Sidon. What does that tell you? Dr. Luke has now been able to be reunited with Paul. And the Lord has given Paul a wonderful grace. Not only is Dr. Luke there literally seeing Paul and no doubt praying with him and recording these incredible events that happen, but Aristarchus is there also. Look in verses 2 and 3. Aristarchus, does anybody remember him? Oh, he was a, he was a pivotal figure. Remember what happened in the theater with Gaius. Remember that all the riots broke out and they wanted to bring Paul in front of them and they wanted to just basically tear him to shreds and they held him up. Aristarchus was his friend and he took up for Paul. He was there. And so Aristarchus is now with Paul again and they're reunited. We see that in, in verse 2. One Aristarchus, a Macedonia of Thessalonica, being with us. So we see here how basically Paul has been turned over to Julius, a centurion of the Augustus band. Dr. Luke continues to write, he was the physician, he is without a doubt a prodigious historian. He was there to give account of Paul's voyage to Rome and to accentuate that this is wonderfully done by the direction and providence of our Lord. And we're going to see that when Paul tells them specifically, whatever you do, this time of year, you've got these type of ships, and we'll talk about what type of ships they were. He said, don't go. Whatever you do. This is not a good time for us to get on a ship and for us to travel all the way from Africa, from Caesarea through Africa to Crete, Cyprus, and go all the way over to Myra and, and Lycia, switch ships, and then get all the way to Italy. It was, it was doing nothing but getting worse on the sea as Paul is telling them. He said specifically, don't do this. We're going to see that. But they do it. So this voyage to Rome, we see how this accentuates God's providence. And one way or the other, Paul's going to Rome. This is a treacherous voyage by, by ship, leaving Caesarea to go all the way to Italy. You know, this is a very remarkable portion of Acts because if you, you have to remember, who, what was Luke's profession? Right? Dr. Luke, he was a doctor. He wasn't a mariner. He wasn't part of the Roman Imperial Navy. But when you're reading this, you would think that he was. This is incredible detail of what happened on the seas and what was supposed to happen. 
when you see that. He, he preserves, he reifies the authenticity, the authenticity of this account by giving details regarding how to gird up a ship and how ancient mariners would prepare for such a voyage. And what they're doing, they're getting ready to head into the perfect storm. That's what this is going, going to. We never thought when we first started hearing the Lord telling Paul go to Rome that not only was he going to go through all of these horrible beatings, go into these Roman tribunals, but then he was going to get shipwrecked and he was literally going to be physically swimming to Rome at one point and all. And so the Lord says he's going, he's going one way or the other. You know, traveling by ships was absolutely no comfortable. You're talk, not talking about an ocean liner, you know, like heading to the Bahamas. These were rickety old ships that had been weathered, held together by dowels, rusty nails, and rope. And it's incredible how they were able to keep so many on board, but we will see that even the weather got so treacherous that they even had to dump their food. What's also incredible, incredible is we see how the captain literally will lose Paul. Now, Julius Augustus, he is being, Paul is being turned over to Julius Augustus. And all of a sudden, I find it fascinating here as you read that the criminals were not allowed to see friends. None of them were. Paul was the only one that was allowed to have fellowship. You think there's some kind of priority that Jesus gave and rose Paul up and basically elevated him in a sense? That there was something there that was different than everyone else with Paul the Apostle? Oh, we're going to see that he's really going to rise to the top after, after we see these first ten verses, what happens. I'll tell you what happens. He tells every single one of them, no matter what happens, you're not going to die. Where did he get the authority to do that? Are you able to do that? What if you were in an airplane and it was ready to crash? Could you stand up and say, hey, everybody, I've been told you're not going to die? You'd, be, you'd look like a complete moron. But Paul confidently tells them, whatever you do, you're not going to die. The Lord's told me this. And the Lord gave Paul special power. He talked to him and he gave him prophecy. This is incredible. What about what's going on out here? Paul now is under Julius Augustus' authority and he loses him. He even knows. I believe Julius Augustus was there with Agrippa and he heard the whole fifth defense. And he said to himself, this man is incredible and he hasn't done anything wrong. And the fact that he's still with us, why do I have to worry about him being chained? He hasn't done anything wrong. And he's still with us? Well, let's just keep him. We'll keep him here. I'll let him talk to his friends. He hasn't even, he's not one of these other criminals. He hasn't killed anyone. He's not an insurrectionist. He hasn't hurt anyone's property. He hasn't beat anyone. He hasn't been a rioter. All he's doing is he's speaking the name of this Jesus Christ. He can go. But the funny thing was, he could have told Paul, take the chains off your hand, get on that board and swim all the way over to Malta by yourself, and, you're, and just leave us. Paul wouldn't do it. He wanted to stay incarcerated. He knew he was going to Rome, and the Lord had told him that. So what happens here, he gets a good centurion, a guy just kind of like the same kind of centurion that Cornelius was back in Caesarea. Remember how Cornelius was of the band? He was of the band of, uh, of Augustus, and he was a Roman centurion that had Bible studies in his house about Jesus Christ? How unusual is that? Here's a Roman centurion that welcomes Peter into his house. 
Well, Paul would enter into the ship first at Adramatium, which is on the coast of Africa. It would sail along the coast of Asia out of Africa. Now, here's what's fascinating about these ships. Talk about ocean liners. All these were were coastal ships that basically were basically emphasized on their leeward sides, and they had to stay close to the coast. They were not vessels that were, had been designed for going out into the high seas. And so already, these vessels, it was important for them to stay close and to stay calm. Basically, there was a lot going on with these vessels, and I'll show you how important they are. The waters that Paul would be sailing in would be very interesting. From October to December especially, and this is the time of year, if you read October, it progressively gets worse in the Adriatic Sea and in the Mediterranean, the Great Sea, and all these bodies of water, it gets worse. In fact, it gets so violent, the current of the waters could actually change four miles an hour in a given second. And the waves could actually get bigger in less than, less than a few seconds. That's how dangerous this is. So here we see tempestuous fluctuation in wind patterns that increase the waves miles per hour drastically and quickly. This is the way it was in the Mediterranean, the Great Sea, the Adriatic Sea. You know, it's almost like, remember when Jesus was in that great tempest? I don't even have this written down. Remember he was in that great tempest? And he's sitting, he's laying there sleeping in the back of the ship. And all of a sudden, it was beautiful out. It was absolutely perfect out. And all of a sudden, it got dark. The waves started raging. The, the, the boat was tossed to and fro. What, we, what would happen back then is on the Sea of Galilee is the cold air would come down from the mountains and it would hit the warm air and it would just cause like an explosion with the weather. And all of a sudden, the ship would just start being thrown back and forth. And they're on this little shipping vessel that was maybe 30 feet. If you're standing here, maybe back to the corner of that church back, that's about how big that boat was. It had no keel on the bottom of it. It was flat bottom because it was a fisherman's boat. And all of a sudden, they're being thrown back and forth like just a, like a bunch of rag dolls. And Jesus, he's sleeping. He's sound asleep. And he gets up and he no doubt puts his hands forward because that's what it was customary for oration. All he says is, peace be still. And the whole thing calmed down. Do you think Paul knew that? I think he knew it. He'd been, he had been around Peter a long time. Remember, he had spent a lot of time with him. You, can you imagine the conversations he and Peter had sitting there by themselves? Well, Paul, you, I'm sorry you missed all this, but you should have seen the day that I started walking on water. You ought to see that one. <laughs> you should have seen the day that we were, it was, it was myself and John and James, we were stuck in that great tempest, and we said to the Lord ourselves, why are you going to let us die? And he could have cared less. He could have cared less about the tempest. He cared about our souls, but he, he, he didn't care about the tempest. And he said, peace be still. And, and Peter probably said, well, I think one of the disciples, one of us said, what manner of man is this that the winds and the sea should obey him? And I, do you think Paul knew that going into this situation? I think he did. I think he knew it unequivocally. Well, look at what happens here. The Mediterranean, or the Adriatic Sea, at the floor of the sea is a lot of mud, a lot of sand containing fragments of shells, fossil mollusks and corals. The main winds prevailing in the area are the Bora, a strong northeast wind that blows from the nearby mountains into the sea. Remember we were just talking about Galilee? Same thing. Cold air hits the warm water and it's just like an explosion in the weather. And a southeasterly wind named Sirocco that is less troublesome from a navigational point of view. 
During the six winter months, Bora and Sirocco alternate, with or without an interval of a few days calm. The tides of the Adriatic, which have been intensely studied, follow a complicated pattern sweeping into the region from the south and being linked with those of the, I the Ionian Sea. The tidal range is about three feet in contrast to the general Mediterranean tidal range of about 0.9 foot. The surface currents are chiefly influ influenced by the blowing winds with currents spurred by north winds reaching a speed of four miles per hour. Although it gets cold temperature in these months, here's the fascinating part about it. We read about what happens when later on they wind up, the, 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 the ship gets wrecked they're all in the sea. Why didn't any of them freeze to death? I mean, this is going into winter, and it's pretty cold out. You want to know what's fascinating about that area of the sea when you go past Crete? It never goes below 52 degrees. The, the temperature never goes down under 52 degrees. That's not comfortable, but it's not going to kill you, which is 11 degrees Celsius. And so at this point, basically, we're putting together, we're, we're painting the picture of what's going on and Paul has now getting to the point where he's about to open his mouth. He's about to say something. And I just want to tell you, and you read the New Testament, when Paul opens his mouth, listen. You want to listen to him. You want to listen to everything he has to say when Paul opens his mouth. You know, Paul is linked with the prisoners as our Lord was hung between two thieves. Counted amongst them in Isaiah 53, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And this is the chief reason, one of the chief reasons why he's still incarcerated. The emphasis of the Jews hated him so much, even the Romans were afraid to set him loose. And then when it got to the point where they could set him loose, Remember, there were two attempts upon Paul's life, and even Paul himself said, I'm going to go in front of Caesar. Now the whole tide's changing. It's going into Paul, basically, into Paul's, Paul's design from Christ, that he is going to go see Caesar no matter what, and this is all part of it. Paul has some of his friends with him. Dr. Luke's with him. Aristarchus is with him. And Trophimus, there, it was said that if you read, actually, if you read part of the book of Timothy, you'll find out how Trophimus was also with Paul on some of his journeys. And he was allowed to have Christian friends around him. You go back to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, we read, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you and Marcus' sister, Marcus' sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. We can see there, there's a really close friendship there. So they are basically on their way, and they're going to be getting on, if, when we're, we just read this in verse 6, was Paul, was, was Paul basically designated to just one vessel? Does anybody remember? No, actually, they switched ships in Alexandria. He got on another ship. The first one that he got on to was very fascinating. And I wanted to talk about this a little more. We were talking about how these were, these were coastal ships, and these coastal ships were very vulnerable the first one, the, the first ship that he was on, carried African goods. There was all kinds of food. There was all kinds of actual artifacts also on these boats, according to the time frame, that carried very, very expensive Persian artifacts that would go into some of their houses and some of the rich people. And these boats were overloaded. 
And then Paul would be transferred in Alexandria onto another boat, and this carried Indian goods and goods for Rome and Italy. So we got to stop. I know where we're out of time. But why is this so important? Why? This is why it's important. Verse 10. Paul is speaking, and Christ is the one leading him. And we read here in verse 10 that which thing, no, verse 27, chapter 27, verse 10, and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading of the ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul, and because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenice and there to winter, which is in haven of Crete, and lieth toward the southwest and the northwest. And we just gave the coordinates of the very direction they're going to head in that second ship where it's going to be so bad that it'll tear that ship to pieces. And Paul warned them. He said, don't do it. We shouldn't be going on this journey. And it said the headmasters didn't listen to him. Is that a wise thing, not to listen to Paul the Apostle? And we can see here why. Well, why do you think that there was such an emphasis for them to stay and risk their lives to stay on the water? They were governed by the Roman Imperial Navy. And when Caesar wanted his goods and when he wanted his stuff, it had to go. And they were scared to death to sit back and say, well, we're going to be a whole week late because we didn't hold up. I mean, because we, we can't hold up. We, we've been told that we need to get here. And they were so afraid of Rome, they didn't listen to Christ who told Paul, you shouldn't be doing this. And they went ahead and did it anyway. And look what happens. Obviously what happens is the boat's torn to shreds and we'll see later how Paul says, don't worry, none of you are going to die. And none of them did. And we see God's providence in that also. So we're going to end there today. We'll pick up in verse 12 next week. And that gives you a little idea what's going on here. And we'll see how what happens to Paul later on. But I believe, and you see, what I wanted to finish up, and when I, one thing I did leave out is, what's incredible is the detail. When you hear how the Bible is mythological, and it's just a legend, and it's not real, look at the detail that went into writing this. I mean, this isn't some kind of, this isn't some kind of, of, of just some kind of like a fable. I mean, if you can track this back, you can actually research all of this and see everything plugs in perfectly. It's, it's just incredible. So let's finish with that. And I ask, uh, say, Brother Greg, could you close us this morning? Thank you.